Hello and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist System. Hey everybody, I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And, and today we are very honored to have with us today Dr. Sunil Kushlani and Dr. Antonio DePaulo to talk to us about continuous improvement in mental health. Welcome to the program. Thank, thank you. you. Dr. Kushlani and uh, Dr. DePaulo, once again, thank you very much for being here. And, you know, when when Skip sent us a little bit about y'all's book uh, called Transforming Mental Health Care and you know, applying performance improvement to mental health. It, it really sounds real interesting. And and but before we, we get to talking about the book a little bit, tell us about the motivation behind the book. You know, I, you know, mental health in the United States is, you know, in a sad state. You know, it, it, we, we, we're ha- we have a tough time getting patients taken care of. You know, there's a lot of stigmata that surround uh, mental health and and a lot of us don't really think it's a medical problem we think it's a, a personality problem or something like that but uh which which we all know isn't the case but tell us a little bit about the driving force b- behind the book yeah so if i may you know this journey for me at least started about uh, 13 years ago in just around this uh, november or december of 2008 you know, our, our hospital, like any other hospital, was, you know, routinely or regularly having its uh, assessments. And we discovered, you know, that like everybody else, that we had some quality and safety problems to improve. And I remember our C- 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 CMO at that time it was um, introduced us to a course. It was called uh, Leadership Surrounding Patient Safety. And in that course, you know, I, I learned about the work of uh, Steven Spear, you know, his uh, Harvard Business Review article uh, about improving, you know, uh, the DNA of the Toyota system and how f- healthcare can fix themselves from in- from inside came to my attention. And, you know, we discovered that you could actually go to Pittsburgh where uh, Steven Spear was consulting and they were uh, the Pittsburgh Region Health Initiative at that point was a collaborative between healthcare uh, prof- uh, hospitals settings and engineers and uh, pe- uh, people like Paul O'Neill, they they were offering this course of applying lean methods to healthcare. So I and our CMO then went on to take this course. And, you know, to cut a long story short, it led to us doing a lot of improvement work in our hospital, hiring our own internal consultant, uh, who was Antonio DiPaolo, uh, uh, you know, in, in that uh, and over the years, we we deployed lean in many different ways. And our CEO, Dr. Steve Sharfstein, encouraged both of us. Uh, he said, you know, you don't, you should, you know, spread the word about your work because you will realize as you speak about it that this is not going to be a very common experience where a psychiatrist collaborates with an engineer to write a book about improvement in healthcare. You know. You know, I think just to add to that, um, when I came to uh, Shepherd in uh, 2013, that January, um, they were looking for, you know, to really put the nuts and bolts in place of an entire system around improvement um, and needed somebody to help them with that. And I come from manufacturing. So uh, doing this uh, kind of work with uh, several other companies in the past, um, 
it was a very interesting um, segue for my career to jump into not only healthcare but mental healthcare, um, and and work to uh, put a system in place uh, around performance improvement that can really um, improve not only the team members' uh, work experience and their processes, but also help to improve those that we were serving, the, the patients and their families. And so um, it really uh, it hit a, I think, a, it was like a light bulb moment of how I could potentially uh, impact um, people in a, in a very real way and uh, you know, moving into mental health and helping them develop this program um, you know, was, was very rewarding to me. So your 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 first experience in improvement work in healthcare period was starting with mental health. Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I, I was going to ask. Um, you know, we we've had industrial engineers on the on the program before, and we talked about the challenges from going from just you know outside of healthcare to healthcare and what that looked like from a, a continuous improvement process and, and what the challenges were in healthcare but what unique challenges does mental health care add in addition to to just the general challenges of healthcare yeah so you know in the, the mental health care space uh, it can be very abstract at times when you're talking about uh, different processes or, or different kinds of things that you're trying to do uh, standard work was a very foreign concept, um, and there was every time you're in a meeting, the answer was always it depends, <laughs> um, and every patient is unique, and and so there was a lot of challenges um, trying to you know kind of put put some sort of framework around a process that would work for this environment. You know, that's interesting about standard work. Can you give us an example of, of a standard work in the mental health space that y'all have been able to identify? Yeah, so one of the for one of the first two projects we did on um, the inpatient unit where I was working. So to give you a framework, so the unit where I was working was a specialized unit treating people with mental illness and addictions. And many of those patients, about half of those patients, who come in, come in involuntarily. So they come in against their will. And sometimes they come in with a few belongings and how to manage the belongings of these patients, you know, that is taken by us to keep them safe was a huge challenge for the system because when they are better and they're about to leave, you have to give them all their belongings back and you may get them to become stable from their manic episode or from their schizophrenia destabilization, but God forbid you lose their cell phone or you lose something that belonged to them, it would be a real challenge. So it's almost like you're running a busy airport and you have these 40 bags and everybody's bags are not well taken care of. You really have to make sure that not only are these bags given to the right person, but nothing gets lost. And the other thing we found was that because there was no system in place for this, to get each patient ready for discharge could take like two hours and one person's manual work to get everything um, um, organized for their discharge. So just simple things like arranging their belongings at the time of admissions and at the time of discharge or making sure that when they leave, you're dealing with people who have not just emotional challenges, but cognitive challenges, social challenges. How do you ensure that they have to carry out a very complex set of instructions with appointments, with multiple people, with medications, with their medical supplies, 
you know, their transportation needs, their housing needs. How do you encourage the entire team to create this package for them in an organized fashion without making it a too, too much of a wasteful process? So these were some of the examples of how we applied a very modern, uh, you know, engineering mindset to something that was otherwise very organic, artisan-like, and everybody was doing it in their own way, you know? And there were also some other um, clinical-based types of improvements we made as well. Um, uh, for example, there was a psychotic disorders unit where, you know, we, we usually had uh, multiple aggressive patients at one time. And so how do you maintain safety on a unit that has uh, some aggression uh, built into it? And so there were several processes that we had to look at from how we how we uh, distribute meals to how we do meds to um, how we do group activities um, to how we zone the, um, the staff so we, we're keeping everyone as safe as possible. So we've looked at the entire process of people, um, of process, and of just the entire flow of the day to ensure that we can get through the day successfully. And so um, I think that particular example, there are maybe 13 or 14 different Kaizen events, if you will, um, that we've worked on throughout a two-year period, and we dropped uh, the violence and the safety incident rate by half um, just by continuing wow. to go after some of these processes. Antonio, uh, here at Baptist, our, our improvement system, we call it the Baptist Management System, and, and some of the tools that we use are you know, A3 thinking, Kata, we, we use TWI, JI, JR, and JM a whole lot. And, and one of the things that we try to, to teach our team members is a process for improvement that you can learn and you can pick up and you can apply it to, to any type problem. But somebody who's coming from manufacturing, and I don't know what, what improvement system you were used to, how how difficult was it to take that in, that improvement process in manufacturing and apply it to not only healthcare but to, to mental healthcare? Well, um, this is where the uh, the partnership with uh, Dr. Kushalani was really critical, right? So going into uh, mental healthcare, I had very very little clue into what they were dealing with from a patient uh, perspective. Um, and so he was actually teaching me everything um, I needed to know about the field of psychiatry, about mental health, about behavioral health. Um, and I was teaching him some of the tools and concepts around lean. And then together, we developed a curriculum that would work within the environment. So yeah, you know, you talked about A3 and, and JI, J, JM, JR. Um, all of those pieces are woven in, but they're woven in in a way that works in mental health. And so we really crafted um, our training environment to be one where it could work for that particular uh, workforce. And speaking of the workforce, you know, one of the things that we often talk about on here is the importance of getting other team members uh, involved in the work, uh, especially physicians, and how sometimes, uh, especially surgeons, HF, uh, can be reluctant to to engage in some of these uh, improvement activities. 
How, what about uh, psychiatrists and other mental health practitioners? Are they uh, more willing participants or, or did y'all have to spend a good amount of time kind of selling the, the theory? I mean, you would see the same distribution curve with any group of people. You know, there are some early adopters. There are some people who are very late adopters and most of them are in the middle. But what I would say is like, for instance, we, we deployed three different methods of lean tools. Uh, one was the we had a whole curriculum or a course on A3 thinking. So it was like a 10 or 12 week, uh, 10 afternoon course where they would come in with a problem. The problem was a safety problem, a quality problem, a delivery problem, a cost problem or a morale problem. They would use the the learning from you know me and Antonio. They would apply it to their own A3 project and their own cohort of 12 to 15 people would, would be their co-peers who essentially would tell them how they could you know come up with some brainstorming ideas and solutions. Now, one thing we did for physicians in that group or nurses or social workers was we we arranged it with our education office to give them CME credit. So for spending four hours that afternoon, they would get CME credits like you guys, I think, do for your own podcast. Anybody who listens to your podcast can get a CME credit. So I think, you know, you have to find what is it that they need for their development, their growth, what are their stressors, we would tell people, you know, bring anything that troubles you. You know, the only thing we would ask people to do was one, don't expect technological solutions to every problem. Like don't expect that the EMR is going to fix all your problems or don't That's expect right, that somebody's going to write a big check to you and say, yeah, here's extra $10,000 and you'll be able to fix this problem. So I think given certain parameters, once you once people see that you're trying to solve some of the stress points that they have, I think. Once some people go through it, then they become cheerleaders for other people. And then, you know, it just kind of goes like a domino from that point on. And I and I think the other big key for us was truly was Dr. Kushalani, who, you know, um, I've always felt that physicians talking to other physicians is is the best kind of affirmation you can get about the work that we're doing from a lean perspective. And so really to have that partnership with Dr. Kushalani in my uh, experience was very, very critical for us to move the ball along. And eventually we went from one or two physicians participating to four and five and six physicians uh, participating in this kind of training. And then we also moved past that and went into the, the residence um, and we started to do the same kind of chain training with PGY1s and PGY2s to move them along their process and their learning as well. That's a great point. Uh, Dr. Kushalani, did um, did you guys have any similar improvement work going on in other areas of the hospital or or did did this did this kind of spread? Did people say, hey, what's going on in the psychiatry department or what's going on with mental health? We'd like to get we'd like to get in on that. Yeah. yeah. So our our system was sort of unique in the sense the entire health system was behavioral health. So it's it's the largest non-profit behavioral health system in the country. It has about 5,000 employees, but everything that the system does centers around behavioral health or special education for people with behavioral health needs. But we have other departments as well in the sense that, you know, we would have, you know, a social work department, a nursing department, a dietary department, uh, you know, a, a warehouse. So we have all those other support pieces that, you know, so this course was open to any employee in the organization. So we had over a course of about uh, five years, 
we offered this course to about 200 people. So 200 people took our A3 thinking course. Then we went on to our you know, next phase where we deployed lean uh, through daily management huddles and that huddles was of every inpatient unit. So every inpatient unit, uh, you know, started doing that. So by doing different things, like when we would do like a Kaizen activity, we would involve not just the physicians or the nurses, but also the support staff and the security guards or the mental health technicians, whoever was involved with that process to improve things. When Antonio left, you know, at that time, the department was handling close to 200 projects simultaneously. So you mentioned before we started recording that your background is in addiction medicine, and obviously everybody is, is well aware of the the ongoing opioid epidemic and, and that fentanyl has uh, you know, ravaged the country. Um, I, I was wondering if you could comment on any efforts that, that you'll have regarding um, using continuous improvement for uh, in the addiction medicine specific space. So I'm going to give you two simple examples. One was, you know, something as um, common as uh, using Narcan for overdose, you know, uh, prevention, we found that that was not being reliably prescribed to every patient who came into the hospital. And so we had a discharge checklist and we made it part of the checklist. So, you know, when you, you build in quality into the workflow, it kind of easily gets utilized. So that was one example where we made it, you know, a reliable part of everybody's discharge to go home with a Narcan supply. That was just a simple example. A much more complex example was we were running a partial hospitalization program to take care of uh, our co-occurring disorder patients, people with mental illness and addictions. And we redesigned the process by doing some um, like value stream mapping, some uh, Kaizans to be able to handle 2,000 more admissions in one year by by doing that, which improved access to care. You know, so if there was something, it, if, if it was taking somebody like 15 days to come into our day hospital, we cut that down to like four days. You know, so we were able to cut down the barriers to accessing treatment much more easily done by using these methods. So those are two examples that I can think of from the top of my mind. Now, I'd imagine that uh, for the mental health patient, for the behavioral health patient, compared to the, the general medicine patient or surgical patient, there's, you know, as you were describing earlier, that a little, you know, maybe less alignment sometimes between the, the physician and the treating team and the, and the patient. Um, can you talk a, a little bit more about that dynamic and, and how that plays out in some of the work that you've been doing? So I'm, I'm going to tell you about something that is used in the field of mental health that could be very useful in the field of improvement. And some other people have already spoken about this. And it's the framework around stages of change and motivational interviewing. Uh, some of you may have already experienced that in some of your improvement uh, conferences. So stages of change is the a concept that was developed by uh, Carlos Di Clemente and James Prochaska. You know, basically they talk about Change is not an event, but a process. So not everybody goes through wanting to, let's say, drink alcohol to not wanting to drink alcohol overnight. You have to take them through sequential stages of change and the stages being uh, pre-contemplation where they don't even think they have a problem to contemplation where they might be ambivalent about the problem to preparation where they start asking questions about what, what could I do about this to actually action where they are actually taking their first step to changing things and to maintaining this you know, action over time. People, executives, go through these same, same stages when you talk to them about not wanting to improve something based on these methods 
to wanting to improve something based on these methods. So you may reach an executive who may say, you know, I know how to solve this. I'm just going to go down to that unit and I'm going to tell people what to do. And they will use their old command and control methods to try to improve people. But again, they are in denial about what the real problem is. The real problem is not that people don't know how to change. It's the problem is that the manager there or the director there is used to firefighting and they have become sort of addicted to that firefighting to the point where they don't see what the real problem is. The real problem is that you really need to empower your workforce to become problem solvers and you need to become a coach or a teacher to become this kind of you know improvement specialist so that everybody in your workforce begins to think about improvement so you can apply the same motivational interviewing approaches that you use in addiction and apply it to organizational psychology and help people to improve that way that, that that's very very interesting you know there improvement work there is there is a lot of uh, a lot of psychology involved Absolutely. in that I mean, yeah, I mean, Deming's one of his four principles was a system of profound knowledge had psychology of human behavior as one of those four things. Yeah, it was, and it was really interesting, you know, if I reflect back um, and thinking about, you know, the stages of change that, you know, I was introduced to by uh, Dr. Kushalani um, and talking about some of these behavioral elements. And then, you know, one of the things we used to do, um, we used to meet every Friday from 4 p.m. until our wives called us, told us to get home. Um, and we would just continue to talk about culture and behavior and all of this stuff. Um, and it always amazed me that that folks within behavioral health didn't realize that, yeah, they're working to get patients through the stages of change, but they didn't realize that they could use the same framework to help them improve their own processes. So it's kind of interesting to see that dynamic play out and how we could um, really help them understand how to improve. It's the old physician heal thyself uh, mentality. Yep. So you mentioned the importance of empowering kind of the the workforce to you know to promote and solve their own problems. Um, do you, you utilize any idea systems um, to, to help kind of bubble those ideas for, for improvement up to the, to the level of your team? We didn't use any formal suggestion systems, but I think involving more and more people in the improvement work, whether through our course, whether through daily huddles, whether through, you know, Kaizen's, we, we kept running parking lot of all the problems that we had not tackled that we would, you know, take on from time to time and try to coalesce them around what resources were available. So I think in that sense, we didn't really have a formal method, a suggestion system, but we did not want to lose any ideas that people were giving us. And we found that the buy-in for ideas was much greater if you used an idea that came from people who are doing the work rather than from us, you know? Yeah, I think, sure. that, you know, one of the things that really helped was the daily huddle process. So our daily huddle process was okay, pick the one or two things that you truly want to focus on. What are your top priorities? And for the Psychotic Disorders Unit, it was around violence prevention. Um, and, you know, every, every different unit had their own kinds of priorities that we had to help them with. And as they went into violence prevention, they realized, wow, this is a huge can of worms to try to fix this. Where do we focus? And so they had to kind of narrow that down with some Pareto charts and figure things out. And then once they figured out where they want to focus, okay, that became their first Kaizen, if you will, 
their first improvement activity. And because we did it that way, and we made it a very learning and learning oriented environment at the daily huddle, it helped them to understand that and apply it to, uh, you know, use the PI tools to help kind of, you know, make the necessary improvements. And they all learned how it worked together. Um, so I see a lot of daily huddles in organizations where it's just kind of like a canned get through the process very quickly. Um, but we really worked to ensure and incorporate there's a learning aspect to what we're trying to do here and ensure that we're moving things forward and that the team is is moving it forward and learning from it. Sure. Dr. Kushalani, we, we've been dealing with this uh, pandemic for about almost going on two years. And tell us a little bit how how the pandemic has affected mental health in the United States and, and those suffering with uh, with mental health. So, you know, I think um, the largest barrier that I feel is, you know, I think access was already a problem. Uh, access has become a bigger problem to those who don't have access to a Wi-Fi or a Zoom or a smartphone or a smart device. Um, I think in general, you know, mental health care organizations, whether Shepherd Pride or my current organization, they're very quick to adopt these technologies. But again, people who are very uh, disadvantaged, they, 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 they really still cannot access mental health care. So I think that's going to be the next frontier of how we solve that problem. Uh, what are some things that can be done, you know, uh, whether, whether it means delivering care to people where they live or, you know, doing most of things uh, without having to have them come to a brick or mortar office, um, uh, trying to uh, somehow use um, more online assessment tools. Things will change, but I think um, it will all depend on what regulations will or will not allow. You know, like now we see people across state boundaries, but tomorrow regulations may get clamped and said, you know, you can't see people across state boundaries. So it will all depend on, I think the technology is already there. It's the political situation or the legislative situation that will decide what the future will look like. You know, uh, very well said. And, you know, I certainly enjoyed the, the conversation today. I know we're, we're kind of winding down on time, but I did want to ask one final question as to you know, what what are your next steps? What are you looking forward to in the future with regards to your to your work? Well, our first step is to get this book out into more and more people's hands and get make sure that people read it and, and see that it is not such a foreign idea to apply this to almost any work you do, any service industry and mental health or psychiatry's or addiction is no exception. Um, we each continue to you know try to become have become evangelists in our own spheres, trying to, you know, talk to the people across the aisle, so to speak, to say, hey, you know, these engineers, you could work with them. You know, they they are not really people that are really alien. That you know, it's just a matter of learning each other's Separate language. Scale. Separate scale. Each other's <laughs> language, and both of us have to had to spend some time defining terms for each other. Like he he observed me one day. He came to my office and observed me one day, and he said, you know, 40% of what you did did not add any value to the patient. And I had to, you know, I had to reevaluate that to say, what could I cut out from my day to make sure that I'm spending more and more time and giving more, more and more value to my patients. But I think you have to be open to this kind of dialogue with the other person. And, and can you repeat the name of your book one more time? Yeah, it's uh, Transforming Mental Health Care. Uh, it's utilizing performance improvement methods to improve mental health care. It's 
published by Rutledge, uh, Francis and Taylor, and uh, CRC Productivity Press. Great. Well, thank you both once again for, for joining the podcast, and thanks to everybody for, for listening to another episode of Connecting the Dots. If you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem the episode for CME credit. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This is very interesting. Thank you. Thank you.